Hi everyone, this week's Behind the Idea features Quoth the Raven, who's a longtime Seeking Alpha contributor and one of the big symbols of the kind of DIY ethic that Seeking Alpha represents. I wanted to talk to him about gold and investing in gold as a portfolio risk management strategy and also to get at the kind of perspective that surrounds a lot of people who include gold in their portfolios. I also think that Quoth the Raven is one of the more approachable, funny, and interesting commentators on the internet. I certainly don't agree with everything that he says, and our styles are very different, but I think that listeners will benefit from his unique perspective and also our exploration of what it means to be a gold investor, what it means to participate in financial news media, and how investors ought to position themselves to really be thinking for themselves and doing their own homework and making decisions that fit their own perspectives. Oh yeah, and before I forget, Seeking Alpha is a website where investors from around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Quoth the Raven is long gold in various permutations that we'll discuss on the podcast. I have no positions in any stocks or securities discussed. As Quoth the Raven will be quick to tell you on his own podcast, nothing here is, should be taken as investment advice. Do your own research. All right, here we go. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to doing this just because, you know, listening to your podcast and your presentations, uh, I saw you at the Case Learning Conference, for example, uh, just your style is a little bit more loose uh, than a lot of analysts and the way you carry yourself is a little more accessible. So I've been really excited to kind of take see see where that kind of approach would take us on this. Uh, podcast. Yeah, so, I, I, I get a feeling that the entire financial world uh, probably needs a little bit more of a loose uh, approach to things. You can be loose and be informal and still make sense and still produce cogent analysis. You know, you just don't have to be wearing a bow tie and Brooks Brothers pants to be a financial analyst. And I think a lot of the people that tune into my podcast are starting to understand that, which is great because it's not really the crowd I like to hang out with anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I uh, I appreciate it. And, you know, I talked to some people after you gave your presentation at the conference, case learning conference, and uh, people thought it was entertaining. I'm not sure everyone totally got into the um came along with you for the whole way, but I think any progress we can make is uh, something that I appreciate. Certainly fits with Seeking Alpha's take all comers type of attitude. We do not prescribe bow ties either. Uh, <laughs> That's fine, and I don't expect to take 100% of the financial world with me, you know, because 
That, that would be that's wild, not, man. That would be a wild scenario. <laughs> I'm not really targeting anybody with, you know, I'm just being myself. And so whoever wants to come along is more than welcome. But as I've found out throughout my life in general, you know, not everybody is going to agree with me and not everybody's going to like my style. So um, those who do, uh, I'm stoked to, stoked to have them. And I get emails and, like, Twitter messages and stuff all the time just hearing from people that, help out with analysis and that, um, you know, offer uh, words of advice and words of encouragement. And I just think it's incredible, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not out there gunning for a, uh, you know, a hundred percent of the financial world audience. I think that would be ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I think that comes across. Uh, but so let's get into, um, you know, behind the idea, we try and get into an idea, uh, in a little bit of detail. And so I want to stay on brand with that, uh, at least at the start of this conversation. And, cool. uh, I wanted to talk to you about gold, which was the uh, anchor of your pitch at the case learning conference, which was um, short the whole effing thing. Uh, I'm not quite right. as loose as you with the um, swear words, but maybe I'll get there by the end. Of the yeah, podcast. the F stands for fucking, just so you know. <laughs> there it is. All right. Uh, any kids who are learning from behind the idea, there it is. Uh, so, so it's a it's a big topic, and I think one of the reasons that it resonated is because uh, your position on gold, basically your bullish gold, as a a way of hedging financial systemic risk. I think would be how I summarize sure. your presentation, and. Uh, I want to talk about that because I think it has a lot to do with your overall philosophy and your overall approach to investing and the financial media. And so I'll just let you in your own words give just a quick uh, brief recap of that, of the overall thesis, and then I'll just ask a few questions and comment on a few things. Well, the thesis of the, the, thesis of the presentation was short the whole thing. It was short the whole system. So on a broader sense, I mean, yeah, the, like, quote, unquote, the idea was to uh, have a little extra exposure to gold in your portfolio in case uh, one of the many, uh, you know, band-aids that is propping up the financial system right now, based on what I think is flawed theory and uh, <clears throat> all types of moral hazards, um, if one of those should collapse and the system should go with it you know, why not have a little extra gold in your portfolio? And I wasn't trying to pitch people. I, I was responding to a couple of comments the other day, people telling me like, oh, Chris Irons wants you to put 50% of your portfolio in gold, which is like not what I argued at all and not what I said. Um, first off, I don't want you to do anything. Um, I'm just telling you kind of what my thoughts are, you know, just as I go out and I read analysis and read perspective from other managers and from other analysts, and take all that stuff and kind of put it into the cocktail blender that is my brain, and then out comes kind of my own analysis and my own perspective, my own take on things. So I'm not asking anybody to do anything. I'm not a registered investment advisor. I don't hold any licenses. I'm not a broker dealer. I'm none of that. Like I always say, I was serving beer for a living like eight years ago, right? So my idea isn't to go out and, and buy a bunch of gold um, so I don't necessarily think it's a terrible idea. My idea was just to kind of wake people up a little bit and try to get people to realize what I believe, which is that 
having a little extra exposure to gold. You know, some people and some portfolio managers always have some type of uh, insurance, whether it's in precious metals or whatever they consider to be a conservative investment, you know, whether it's, you know, government bonds or foreign currencies or whatever. My idea was just to shed a little bit more light on that and maybe kind of offer the uh, offer the suggestion that having a little extra exposure might not be a bad thing 10 years into a bull market that has been running, you know, fueled basically on crack from the Federal Reserve, which is the best way I can think about it. I mean, it's been a debt-fueled spending spree that has come directly from the Fed's printing press, and all this money has kind of made a short stop into the capital markets. Um, I don't necessarily agree with anything that the Fed has done over the last 30 or 40 years, and I'm still a student of the economic theory, so I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a PhD economist. Um, I actually yeah. think that's probably one of the one of the things that helps me out a little bit, and it's helped me kind of shape my perspective on things. So my idea is the, the more and more I get to know and become intimate with not only the capital markets, but the financial world as a whole, all the things that encompass the financial world, whether it's individual, you know, investment advisors, retail traders, people in the financial media, the companies that are public, um, and all the different kind of offshoots of all the capital markets, you know, whatever, there's a million of them, the debt markets, the bond markets, there's, uh, and there's an infinite number of instruments that you can position yourself in an infinite number of ways in to really get long or short anything that you want. You know, I said in another presentation, if somebody eats a donut, you know, in Belgium somewhere, there's an ETF that responds to that. Like, it's ridiculous. So my idea is just to try to get people to back up a little bit and I guess realize as a whole that this is a system that, you know, humans has, have uh, constructed that is not foolproof and that has run into major unforeseen catastrophes in the past, like 2008 uh, and like 2000. And, and the point of the matter is if we haven't learned kind of how to forecast those things and we haven't really seemed to catch on as to what causes them, at least, at least that's what it appears to me from, from our uh, monetary policy and from our fiscal policy, that you may want to have a hedge against that. And, and the entire financial system kind of conspires to make, uh, not only to agree that our policy, our monetary policy that we, uh, that we employ is kind of okay and the standard and everybody's cool with it. You know, everybody that, that appears on CNBC that's analyzing an individual stock or is talking about macroeconomic data, for the most part, buys into, um, buys into what the Fed is doing. Um, they're certainly not vocal about not buying into it. Um, and so my kind of pitch is to get people to realize that all these little things that I've found out over the last five or six years that I know the lay person may not understand are things that when I, like, tell my father, who's, like, a retired um, postman, not that he doesn't have good financial acumen because he does, but he's not 
he's not heavily engrossed in the financial markets. You know, when you tell something to my father, like, hey, um, investment banks make fees off of doing equity offerings for companies, um, and many times as they're preparing to do that, they'll go out and issue bullish analyst reports on companies. The people on Main Street don't really understand that. They don't understand that all these companies are uh, kind of – all these yeah. individual pieces of the financial system kind of conspire together. And this is why, you know, we had rating agencies prior to 2008 that didn't really come out and, and go nuts and say, hey, there's a huge problem here. And we didn't, certainly the Federal Reserve didn't come out prior to 2008 and say there's, there's going to be, a, you know, a problem. Ben Bernanke said just the opposite. He said, you know, it's, it's contained in subprime and Fannie and Freddie are going to make it. And, yeah, okay, you know, yeah, so, yeah. so right. Moody didn't warn us, the S&P didn't warn us, Ben Bernanke didn't warn us. Um, <laughs> right. Nobody I really... About that. I want to talk about the Fed in particular. So, um, what the Fed is interesting to me because I think that, I, to me, there are sort of two different ways you can approach, uh, there are a lot of ways, but... There, there are certain investment strategies that more or less focus on sort of bottom-up fundamental analysis of particular stocks, and the macro picture is more in the background. You know, like Warren Buffett says, I think right. he does more, but he says, you know, like, I don't look at the economy. It doesn't matter to me. I invest across he doesn't what? or whatever his, his, his take is. There, there's a, and it's the one, at least for me, it's like a simplifying strategy to just say, I don't really know and I don't believe I can really understand the impact that the Fed is having on the financial market. So well, me, I don't think Warren Buffett cares about what the impact is that the Fed is having on the financial markets. I, I really don't. I, I think he probably understands. Why? Is it, did you ask me why? Yeah, I asked you why. Because over the course of the last 40 or 50 years, his investing strategies – have run congruent with what the central banks have done. So Warren Buffett's strategy doesn't work if we're not, if the, you know, the, the Fed isn't basing its policy on Keynesian theory. It just doesn't. Okay. So cool. Buffett, Buffett is proclaimed as, you know, this uh, investing genius for doing something that is so simple, right? Just buying and holding. And I said this in my presentation, right? just buying and holding. Like, if you would have bought stocks in the 50s and held them to now, you would have made X amount of your money. And it's like, how can it possibly be so easy? When you look at a chart of the Dow Jones, right, like how can it possibly just start at, you know, zero and go to 25,000? Like, why does it always go up? Like, yeah. it, it's not a market. The, the, the market is on a, on a track that there is, uh, you know, there's occasional booms and busts with, but the Fed kind of keeps the market on this track of continually going up by coming in any time that there's any type of um, any type of deleveraging or any type of recession to inject capital into the market. And, and at the same time that they're doing that, you know, somebody is paying the price for that. The purchasing power of the dollar winds up going down. And by the way, this idea of quantitative easing is is relatively new, okay? And so eventually the Fed is going to run out of levers to pull and they're going to run out of the amount of money that they're going to be able to print 
before either the currency will get away from them or there will be some type of confidence crisis involving our, our sovereign debt. Um, it's, it's, you know, Jim Chano said to me one time, it's an unprecedented experiment and, and, and nobody knows how it's going to end. And that's like the absolute best way you can put it. Right. So, so Warren I'll, Buffett I ask is I want to ask you uh, what, like on a scale of one to a hundred, what percent, basically what percent, what percent uh, weight do you give the Fed's actions in terms of driving the stock market? Is it, and is it, that number can vary, you know, according to different things. It's sort of like, just to give an estimate of how impactful you think that is, like, one to a hundred, how, how would you sort of try and quantify that? Because you look at other stuff, too. I see you paying attention to all sorts of things. Um, well, you're, you're asking how impactful I think the Fed is in, in influencing equity prices? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I would say probably more than 50%, probably 70%, 80%. I don't really know. I'm, uh, you know there would be a number of calculations and things that I would have to do that I don't have the brain power or the time or the attention span to yeah, deal with. Yes, that's all. So I'm just looking for from, just to like give a sense. That's all. Yeah. I'm not trying to pin you down or anything. Just to, yeah. Well, let's take a look at 2008 as an example. I mean, what would have happened if the Fed hadn't bailed out AIG? Mike. <laughs> I'm yeah, conducting the interview it, now. It may be closer to uh, one, uh, 100% than 0% in 2008. Uh, well, I mean, what, just what would have happened? I mean, a, people were saying if AIG went under, the entire global economy would have went under. Yeah, right. So instead of that happening, the Fed wrote in and, you know, force-fed the banks, the ones that needed it and the ones who didn't need it, to take this bailout money regardless of whether or not they needed it, most of which, you know, the guys well, that... That was the, that, yeah. that was the treasure, that was Treasury, right? That, did the that was the Treasury. And it, the Fed was opening the discount window and buying assets off of... Right. Balance sheets. Yeah. That, that, that's sure that's accurate. It, it was Paulson, right? So anyways, the, yeah. the point of the matter is what happens in that situation and where would the stock market be today? We would probably a decade later, be in the midst of starting some type of real actual recovery based on fundamentals and, and based on, you know, productivity instead of being based on just more spending that comes from a, you know, the, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, I think you're, yeah, I think you're probably, um, some of that does resonate with me. I think that, that the economy is shaped by these sort of centralized decisions. I also, I, I'm with you on just the overall perspective that the system is made up of individuals who make decisions and human beings who have human flaws and are not perfect. And I think that that's a, a valuable perspective to bring to the market. I think that if the average person, the average Joe, I think if the average plumber, if the average welder, if the average guy that, you know, I knew from my neighborhood in South Philadelphia, if the average person understood exactly how the financial system works, and again, I'm still a student of this, right? Like, yeah. I didn't, 
I, I didn't. I don't have a PhD in economics, right? I've been a student of the markets, and I'm still learning myself. But more than once, probably 50 times over the last five or six years, when I've learned something, I've had the recurring thought in my head that if the average individual understood how the system worked, where their money went when they deposited it, you know, what their 401ks are made up of, you know, what, you know, what, their, what their investment advisors take, how the system works, how analysts get paid, how investment banks get paid, how companies, you know, if they understood the whole thing, they would riot. I think the public would riot. And I think that the, the entire financial world is cloaked in jargon and little, you know, secret kind of yeah. sayings and things that people don't understand. There's been so, over the course of the last six years, there have been so many financial terms that I have learned that just mean something you know, yeah, completely normal. You know, th there's a million different words for debt. There's a million different words for stocks. There's a million different words for equity. There's a million different words for all of these little things, right? And there's, <clears throat> and you can analyze any stock to the nth degree. Yeah. I think yeah, if the average person understood that, they would riot. Because I think people are brought up the way, at least that I was brought up, which was I was brought up, you know, in a household where I was taught to save. I was brought up in a household where, you know, as a kid, your parents open you a checking account and you're taught to save. And, you know, you have to save your money. So that, you know, but what is the point of saving when your money is depreciating 2% per year and you're not making any interest on your savings? So we, the policy fuels people to spend, not to save. Um, and I think that people who are, Good people, like I have family members that I talk to that, that talk to me about their, their saving habits. And, you know, oh, we're trying to put away for this. We're trying to put away for that. Like you can't even start a discussion about inflation's effect on the value of the dollar over the, over the next 10 years because it's, it's either too complex or they don't want to listen or whatever. But I think if people understood that, if they understood that, you know, how inflation works, how our monetary policy works, I think people would riot. I really do. So because there's been so ma there's been so many times where I've like nearly lost my lunch just learning things about quote unquote the system, and then it gets delivered to you by financial analysts and people that go on television who, when you don't know anything about finance, they look like they all know what they're talking about because they're all wearing suits and everybody's smiling and you see the same people all the time and hey it's CNBC so people yeah. must know what they're talking about. And then all of a sudden you see people making these glaring errors. You know, you see, a, you, see you know, massive, massive. Uh, yeah, so let me ask you a question. Let me jump in here. Uh, you're, <laughs> you just get, when you get going, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to find a spot, but I'm going to take Well, the, the point, the point of what I'm trying to say is, it, it, you know, the, the turd kind of gets polished and then delivered through the financial news networks. People that don't understand what I want to talk about. I want to talk about. I want to talk about the financial media in a second. First, I just want to say, like, what else does it cause you to do besides get sick to your stomach and want to lose your lunch to focus on these issues? Like, what? How does it? How does it help your investment process? Or is it? I think if I think if nothing changes, I think if nothing changes from a macro level, and and you know we don't we don't meaningfully change monetary policy. 
and we don't meaningfully change fiscal policy. And if everything stays the exact same way that it is for the rest of my life, and, you know, we continue to do QE10, QE20, and we go to negative rates and, you know, inflation and the whole thing, at least for my lifetime, works out. Even if it, even if it stays like that, I think that people need the perspective of, hey, you know, this is one of several theories, and we're just trying this out. And you can take that and you can apply it. You can take that air of skepticism and you can apply it to anything. You can apply it yeah. to, you know, looking at a, a particular equity investment and yeah. saying, hey, well, you know, look, the company is telling me this number, this number, and this number, but, you know, what are they adding back to earnings? What were the currency effects? What was this? What was that? So just the, the general rule of not just swallowing what you're given and taking a second and being like, look, here's an industry where everybody is trying to fuck everybody else. And, you know, it has been proven over time that people will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will put your money at risk because, you know, the banks specifically, because in my opinion, they think they know that they have insurance, quote unquote, from the Fed and from the government. Right. In an industry like that, you have to be vigilant. And so you have to be. That reminds me of something I wanted to bring up with you, which is I look on Twitter. You know, I'm sure we follow a lot of the same people. I follow a lot of traders on Twitter. Yeah. I think of you a little bit as a trader in a way. We can talk about that separately. But sure. one thing that I've noticed about traders is that a lot of them are conspiracy theorists. I feel like there's a lot of paranoia in that approach to the markets. And I wanted to see whether you – do you think that's true, that it's – like it maybe it it helps you to be a conspiracy theorist to to do well in trading. Uh, do you think there's a correlation there at all in any way? What do you think about my? Theory? Not really, because I no. I know traders that don't give a shit about the Fed's monetary policy, and they're just trying to trade momentum, and they'll trade garbage stocks of companies with no fundamentals because they're just going up or down. And I know traders that are like-minded the way that I am, which is, you know, I trade occasionally. I also have investments that I hold. I, you know, I, uh, so I don't really think that one correlates with the other, to be honest with you. Do you okay. I, don't, I don't know. And, and I really don't – I don't even consider myself a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of – I joke. I'm not, I'm not I that joke that I'm a conspiracy. I'm not saying well, – I'm just saying I wanted to see if you noticed this pattern being as deep in the financial. I think that people have very good reasons to doubt everything that they're told. And so I don't, I don't look at it as a conspiracy theory. I think if you are, you know, kind of wide-eyed and, uh, or uh, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with what you're being handed by, everything from the government to the central bank to the financial news networks to analysts, if you're just happy with what you're being given on its face, you know, I I think that's a horrible, horrible way to uh, look at the world of finance. And I I would say that one of the things that I try to accomplish and, you know, maybe I'm doing it and maybe I'm not, you know, it's just this is what I do, is to kind of be able to shake people a little bit 
and just say, shit, you know, like, if you're reading the analyst report, at least read the disclaimers, you know, like, Tim Ramey happens okay, so to be an Herbalife distributor. You know what I mean? So, Wait, Chris, in, in fairness to me, you did you did mention tinfoil hats on your in your presentation. So. Oh, I did. No, 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 I did, and, and and you're right. And I I did joke about that, but like I I don't I don't you know I joke that it's kind of conspiracy theory to get people's attention. And I said as much when I was talking to Bill Fleckenstein on my on my podcast. You know, I said, hey, I'm kind of a conspiracy theorist, yeah. but I don't view it as a conspiracy theory. I just right. view it as what I think is going on. But I think if you, if you were to pull somebody like Jeremy Siegel out of his office at Penn and say, well, what do you think about, you know, the idea that the Federal Reserve could be buying S&P futures or that, you know, there, all these people conspire to do one thing or another, he would be like, oh, well, that's absurd. There's no way. There's laws to protect that and this and that and the other. And it's like, like you think that's going to stop people? I mean, I, I don't know. I just... Just judging by what I have discovered on my own doing research over the last six or seven years, yeah. I don't trust anybody further than I can throw them. And that includes the government. It includes central banks. It includes people that I just meet. It includes anybody in the industry. Great. Yeah. Look, so I want to – okay. First, I want to ask you one quick question. Does that make me a conspiracy theorist, Mike? Does it make sense? Yeah. What? Is that what you asked? Uh, yeah. No, well, I'm just asking, like, do you think that makes me a conspiracy theorist, or do you think it just makes me somebody on my on my toes? I, so or both. When I mention the conspiracy theorist thing, I think it's – I get the feeling that traders have this kind of attitude towards the financial markets that are, is not the same – and I'm using this trader-investor thing as kind of just shorthand. I don't really think that there are two buckets or whatever. But sure, I think sure. There are people who are short-term focused or near-term horizon, and they're looking for small dislocations, and they're kind of just – it's more of an attitude of explicitly trying to be exploitative, I think. If you're a trader, you're like – you're saying – if you identify as one, you're saying, like, I'm here to make, like, a quick dollar. And I think that quick dollar attitude, this is where my theory comes in. It's like lends itself to a little bit more of a paranoid, and I don't mean paranoid as like being mentally sick. I mean it as I understand. a paranoid attitude where you're like looking out for yourself because you know your own motivation is just to make the quick dollar. You know, the same way that like a street hustler is going to be like looking over his shoulder. I feel like people who gravitate towards that trading style have a little bit more of this world-weary uh, attitude. And I think it's born from the buy – maybe it's because the environment's been so friendly to buy and hold investing strategies. And maybe – but I think there is something – so I believe conspiracy theory, I've just seen that – that's just based on my experience going on Twitter and seeing people, what people retweet and what people sort of talk about. And then they also happen to talk a lot about stock trading, for example. Uh, but, no, I don't think it's like this one-to-one -one thing. I just wanted to hear from you about this. I think it's an advantageous. I agree with you that it's advantageous to have this skeptical attitude. And I think it's, it's pronounced in people who are involved in this corner of the market. 
what I wanted to ask you was how do you express your uh, view on gold? Do you own uh, a publicly traded trust like the IAU? Do you yeah? So there's gold? there's a bunch of different ways that you can own gold, and I talked about this um, in my presentation, right? So obviously, if you're if you're full on conspiracy theorist, you want to old own physical gold, right? You want to old own excuse me. Oh geez, you want to own uh, bullion, right? Yeah. Um, because there's nothing stopping you from reaching out and touching it aside from, you know, nothing. You can just put it in your house or put it in a safe, and you have access to it whenever you want to have access to it. And you can run the whole spectrum of ways to have exposure right. to it, from that to, you know, investing in a trust or, like, investing in something like, you know, putting money in something like gold money where, you know, you, you can actually use um, – you can use gold to, to actually make monetary transactions and your the rights to gold that are in a trust that you have are moved around. Um, or you can go and obviously buy, like, ETFs. Or, you know, if you want to be even more speculative, you can go and own, uh, like, gold mining companies. Um, the, the thing that I think is and – and I think you should probably diversify, to be honest with you. I mean – I'm diversified. I think the safest way to do it is just to own physical bullion. You buy from a reputable dealer, like somebody like Kitco or somebody who's been around for a million years, and uh, and you just own physical bullion and you just store it. And you know, I'm not talking about going out and buying five or ten million dollars worth of bullion. I'm just saying have some because in the case of systemic shock, the price will appreciate so quickly um, that. Uh, you know, you, you won't need a ton. And we're not talking about, you know, 15% of your portfolio or 20% of your portfolio. It doesn't, doesn't have to be like that. I think as you, as you start to, like I said in my presentation, if you own shares of um, something like uh, a gold trust ETF. Um, yeah, I and you Let's talk about just. Um, well, if you, if you own shares in a trust that's owned by a company, like, yeah. um, you know, a BlackRock or something, and that company winds up going under, you don't own anything. Then you own yeah. shares yeah. of Theranos, you I know. So, the so there's increasing amounts of risk. Yeah. The, more, the more things you put in between you and the actual asset. So, and the same goes for any type of um, management team that you want to introduce into the picture. If you're looking at a gold mining company, um, you know, and you have a management team in place, that's just another area where things can get screwed up, where there can be human error. Um, I was looking at the risk sections in the prospectus of the uh, IAU ETF, and I found I was actually surprised at how much, obviously they always kitchen sink or tell you a lot of things that could go wrong, but I was interested that you know, they index to a certain price that's fixed in London at a certain time. They mentioned that that could be subject to disruptions or other issues. And, you know, we had the price-fixing scandal around LIBOR, which is a fundamental benchmark of the financial system. Seems like anything's possible there. They also mentioned that the fund uh, might close. It's scheduled to close in 2045, which seems like an important detail. Uh, there's, you know, the expenses, uh, all sorts of different issues can happen. So I think it's, it makes it interesting. Uh, I guess I'm not sure whether 
how I feel about these ETFs. I thought before I looked at it that they were more direct. I just had the impression that they were more direct. Maybe I've been watching too much CNBC. But um, I want to um, push you. Uh, what's your? Do you do you own physical? I do. You do. Okay. And you're along the spectrum. Do you own it in all the iterations that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, yes and no. Yeah, I have like uh, I have some exposure to like uh, the GDXJ. Um, I have a couple of individual mining companies. Um, you know, I have a little bit of uh, other precious metals that I own physically. Um, but yeah, I would say uh, I, probably I'm probably equal weight across the spectrum if I had to describe what my allocation is. Okay, cool, interesting. Uh, I'm going to tell you one more thing about gold, and it's from the perspective of a Seeking Alpha editor. Which is it's from the perspective of what? Of a Seeking Alpha editor, from an editor at Seeking Alpha. Oh, the perspective, okay. Yeah, yeah. And that is, it is really hard to edit and curate that content and vet it for uh, value to readers. And I think it's because gold, this is my opinion, Gold probably has some sort of real economic real value as opposed to nominal value adjusted for inflation. It probably has some just intrinsic price, intrinsic value to it. And then that adjusts for inflation. If inflation goes up, then relatively speaking, gold is at a higher value. Sure. Anything that is around, and it, it's probably the cost of production, that would be the theory of commodities. Any other activity in there, it, that's my opinion. That's my mental model for it. Everything else is just kind of noisy fluctuation. So when we get lots of articles about this and that theory of the gold to silver ratio or some other metric, I can believe a couple things are driving gold price, like momentum, I could believe. That. Right, 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 right. But mostly, I'm not sure that it's all that interesting of an asset class to analyze. It doesn't like capture my interest. No, there's there's nothing to analyze really. I mean, unless you're analyzing a a mining company that has expenses and has capital expenditures and has, you know, its own balance sheet and has management and all these things that you can kind of put in between you and the actual physical asset. I mean, you can analyze all those things. That's where there's plenty of margin for error. But I would agree with you. I would say that it is boring. I would say that the price is, you know, heavily kind of driven by inflation. But I think in the interim, um, you know, my buddy used this analogy with me about a company once, and he said it's like it's like you're walking down a path with a dog, right? And and I think the price of gold will continue to go up, obviously, as the purchasing power of the dollar continues to go down. And that's kind of the path that we're on. Um, and there will be premiums built into that based on, um, you know, people hedging and volatility and stuff like that. And I think the price will fluctuate kind of along the way. Um, he, you know, the analogy he used was if you're walking down a path with a dog and the dog is kind of running to the left of you and running to the right of you, it's all over the place, but ultimately it's going to wind up walking down the path with you in the same direction that you're going. So it, it's like a reversion to the mean analogy, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the price of gold is like that. I, I don't think, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody 
that is going to tell you in 50 years the price of gold is going to be lower than it is now. Nobody's going to tell you that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think you can probably find anybody on Wall Street that will tell you that. It just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, as an economic instrument, gold has thousands of years backing it up, and, and our, our policy has, you know, a couple of decades uh, backing it up. So I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that will make that argument. In, in the interim, are there going to be, like, technicians and, you know, all this other crap, guys, you know, banks upgrading it and downgrading it and that causing price fluctuations and, you know, people looking at resistance levels and support levels and the RSI and the chicken money indicator and the 50-day moving average and all this horse shit. You know, of course, like, there's going to be that stuff. There's going to be people that look at the market on a very, very minute-to-minute, second-to-second perspective. Um, you know, where a guy that puts on a huge lot in the morning and if he can get, you know, if he can get 20 pips in a day, it's a huge day for him. He's going to look at the price of gold very differently than somebody like me who's thinking, well, if I buy gold now in 20 years, I'll have protection against the loss of purchasing power in the dollar. So I think depending on what your time horizon is, you're going to look at it very differently, right? Yeah. What do you think about people who might have an agenda in selling gold? I feel like they're... This is true across financial markets. We've talked about conflicts of interest. I think it's particularly pronounced there's a certain type of gold. I think they're just vendors online who have, they sell gold to people. It's their job to sell it. And they use a lot of this similar, you know, maybe maybe your argument is valid uh, in terms of you're just, you're positing it's sort of more muted than these people are. Some of these people are saying like, the the sky is going to fall imminently. Not your, your right. argument is more like we don't know when a crisis may emerge. Yeah, I'm not saying that we're having a crisis tomorrow. No, because yeah. like I said, our our kind of trip down this road of monetary policy is unprecedented. Right. So you know, like even Bill Fleckenstein said on my podcast, like, oh, I think in six months the markets are going to crack. I, you know, I don't know about that. I I think it right. could be. 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, or it could be tomorrow, you know? It could, it could be tomorrow that something turns up on Deutsche Bank's balance sheet that nobody knows about, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we're staring down the barrel of $2 trillion in liabilities that nobody understands or knew about. I mean, look, it's human nature to kind of push it, right? It's human nature to, to push things until they break. And it's encouraged by our, by our policy. It's encouraged by our fiscal policy. It's encouraged by our monetary policy. So it's only going to be a matter of time. And we'll probably have smaller bubbles. We'll have bigger bubbles. We'll have things that will burst. We'll have things that are systemic. We'll have things that aren't systemic. You know, uh, I think, think that... The, what do you think of the hard sell, the hard gold sell? Do you know what I'm well, talking me, about? Well, let me finish. Yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay. okay. So I think that... Uh, uh, look... I have no doubt that there are scummy, sleazy, you know, just asshole kind of scumbag gold and silver sellers. I see it all the time. I mean, all you have to do is like, and it's the same people that you see, by the way, that advertise on CNBC with things like crash-proof retirement and shit like that. I mean, uh, what's that? I want us to talk about CNBC, too, so let's get there soon. But well, let, yeah, let, let me finish my point, though, real quick. My point is there are no doubt that there are sleazy and scummy gold and silver vendors that have probably take huge rips 
huge premiums, huge commissions on products that, you know, maybe they don't disclose are, are half silver or half gold or they, um, or they're, you know, they're just overpricing things to people that don't understand. I, my suggestion would be if you want to purchase uh, gold or silver to just do it from a very reputable vendor. And, and like I said, Kitco, I have no association with them or whatever. I, I have nothing to do with them, but Kitco is like a very reputable name. Um, you know, they, they have, uh, they're vetted. They, they don't charge a huge premium to the spot price. Um, and I would say to just stick with reputable people, but yeah, to be very careful of the type of leads that you're talking about, because it's definitely out there. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think you're right that there are people that kind of scream the sky is falling tomorrow, um, as a sales tactic. Having said that, I don't necessarily disagree that something like that is possible. So okay. <laughs> while, while people that are saying, you know, we've got crash-proof retirement or, like, this guy who just got busted for uh, doing these, like, pension loans and other, like, real sleazy shit I was just reading about the other day, like, well, I can say, like, that, like, you're, you're going to get screwed no matter what on that. But the truth is, if you, <laughs> the truth of the matter is if you, if you wind up paying a 50% premium to gold spot price and you wake up tomorrow and the economic system collapses, you'll probably, your P&L will probably still be in the green. Having said that, I'm not a, I'm not advocating for ripping people off. I think it's terrible. Yeah, so I would yeah, just yeah. say use a very reputable dealer. Um, and you know, and like I said, ironic that wherever you look, you can find these conflicts of interest. You know, there's you're not really safe from it, even in, even trying to hedge against disaster. Right. Well, I think people would do well to educate themselves and to, to stick with uh, people that are reputable. Do you watch CNBC? Uh, it's on, yeah, where I work. So I'm kind of, I don't watch it actively, but it's it's on, like, oh, in the yeah. background. So yeah. And I'll, 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 I'll turn the volume up and go over if somebody's on that, that I want to listen to. But uh-huh. I don't, uh-huh. like, come home and flip on fast money, if that's what you're asking. Uh, you're talking to probably, I used to work at thestreet.com. I wrote the fast money recap. Every day. Oh, okay, I Jesus, sorry. Every day for about 16 months. Great. Oh, that sucks. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, it was good. Uh, what was it good for? I type, I can type incredibly fast now. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would file the piece as the closing credits were rolling. I would write it during the commercial breaks. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's good. Uh, so, so, yeah, just... Have, you're basically a part of the financial media ecosystem at this point. So what do you think of just our overall environment and how it's changed since you started writing? And what's your attitude? I mean, you have some negative criticisms of some of the mainstream outlets. We talked a little bit about that. What's your overall perspective and how do you view yourself as kind of a part of that system? Well, that's a good question. I mean, look, overall as a whole, I think people would be, I think people would be surprised probably to learn that I'm not like, I'm not 100% anti-financial media. I'm, I'm really not. Um, you know, there's a number of journalists and publications that I think do really good work that I read regularly. Um, who's good? That's one of one of my questions. Is just who's good? Question mark. Um, I think you know 
people like Gretchen Morganson, somebody like Charlie Grant at the Wall Street Journal, I, I will read everything he publishes regardless of, um, regardless of what company it's on or what topic it's on. Same goes for, like, Mark Merrimont. And I, I hate to be repeating some of the people that Mark Ahotis brought up on his podcast with me, but uh, that's the truth of the matter. Um, you know, who else will I be? I mean, I'll read the Wall Street Journal without any reservation. I won't, I won't pick up an article from the Wall Street Journal and think that I'm being fed bullshit. Um, they, do, they do a really good job. They get a lot, they get a lot of scoops. And, and similarly, like, I'm the same way about certain anchors on CNBC. Again, like Marco Hoda said, like, if David Faber gets an M&A scoop, like, I'm going to be far more likely to listen to him yeah. than, uh, than somebody like Charlie Gasparino or, um, you know, I, I think <laughs> almost in his exact words, you know, Faber's a serious guy. He's plugged in. He's been doing it forever. Like, there's just certain people that I feel like you can trust um, implicitly. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head of who else I read regularly um, that, you know, like I'll watch Bloomberg. I think Bloomberg's delivery of the financial news is a lot better and far less sensational than CNBC. I often find that their interviews last longer, that they go into depth a little bit more. To me, at least, it feels like their anchors seem to, understand the subject material a little bit better than some other anchors on other networks. Um, you know, to, to be honest with you, I don't think that Scott Wabner does a bad job on CNBC. Um, I think, you know, he does his best to try and put up the other side of the argument a lot of times when he brings people on that are, you know, when he brings on short sellers or he brings on people that are talking about controversy. Um, I, I don't, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, where I fit in the ecosystem is uh, I'm just I, – I don't really think about that. I just kind of say what it is that I want to say, um, and I take my thoughts, and I take what's in my head, and I pump that out onto Twitter, or I write an article about it or whatever. And, you know, Speaking Alpha has been awesome over the course of the last six or seven years because when I – when I have something to say, I can get it out there and I can disseminate it. And, you know, I, I mean, I remember the first time I was in New York City in like 2014 or 2013 or whatever. And, uh, and I had met several like very prominent billionaire hedge fund managers that had all told me they read my articles. And I was like, I mean, you know, that was four years ago. Like I'm a nobody now, but I was like really even more of a nobody back then. And, you know, this is a guy that was literally had just finished grad school and was pouring Guinness for a living. And so, to you know, to be sitting in, a, in an office of a very prominent front page Wall Street Journal type hedge fund and have a manager say to you, like, oh, I read your articles all the time. Like, I think they're fantastic. I remember that day I called George Moriarty on the way home, on my way to Penn Station, and I thanked him. I said, you know, you guys have such a badass, powerful platform that somebody like me who's just a schmo, you know, can get on the desks of people that are, you know, the main players in the industry. And I just thought that was so cool. Like, even the first time Herb Greenberg called me back when I was writing a lot about Herbalife, um, yeah. you know, he, he called me one day and he's like, who are you? You know, and I was like, 
I don't know. Like, who are you? <laughs> I had it. I knew as little about him as he knew about me. Of course, her now I know has been around for decades and is like the super well-respected guy. Yeah. But uh, I remember I was like trying to get on the subway in, in uh, at City Hall in Philly, and I like couldn't hear him because the trains were going by. I was like, "Well, you work for a hedge fund?" I'm like, "Hedge fund." I'm like, it's 12 in the afternoon, and I'm drunk right now. I just got off work, you know? Like, <laughs> not working for a hedge fund. So, but, you know, thus again, kind of my understanding of how powerful the platform is. Um, back to the financial media, though. Um, look, I think the financial media needs more perspective and needs less. I think the overall tone of the financial media and, and CNBC specific has a long bias. And I think that the financial media would be serving people a lot better if they even pull, I would say their long to short bias is probably 90-10 if I wanted to just kind of gauge the attitude of the analysts that they bring on and of the anchors that they have. Um, you know, even in the morning, it's like if the, if the Dow futures are up 100 points, like everybody's upbeat in the morning and Andrew Ross Sorkin is smiling and Joe Kernan's cracking jokes and it's like – if the Dow futures are down 100 points in the morning, you know, the, the mood is kind of grim and the music changes and there's red all over the screen. It's just so stupid. It's like, it, you know, like you're talking about one hour of trading in the futures market for one day where it, it's just, I think it's ridiculous. But I, I don't know. I guess it's because it's television. I don't really know much about TV. I mean, it wasn't even until a couple of years ago I knew that, like, all these people wear makeup. I find that hilarious, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm really a neophyte to the industry. So as I'm learning a lot of this stuff as I'm going along, maybe it's stuff that seasoned investors have known forever. Um, but you know, one thing after the other, I'm kind of appalled by, I think if CNBC could pull their long to short bias from like 90%, 10% back to like something like 65, 35, I think they would be doing people a much better service. I think people would lose less money when we have problems and hiccups. Um, and, and I don't know. I just think they would be serving the public better. Now, me, I'm probably the counterbalance, right? I'm probably more 30-70, you know, 30% long attitude, 70% short attitude. Not to say that I don't want to go long because I do. And, and, you know, but I kind of think of myself as a counterbalance to what they're doing. And, you know, it's like when people ask me about zero hedge, which I read all the time also, too. Like, I will read the Wall Street Journal, and I will read Reuters, and I will read CNBC.com, and I'll read The Street. And, you know, if it's, if, it's an artist, if it's a topic that I'm interested in, I'll go to any source to try to identify objective primary source facts. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I also read Zero Hedge, too, because I find that they deliver the facts. They just do it with a little bit of a different attitude. Um, and I think having that perspective, and you know what, credit to Josh Brown on CNBC, because he said, like, the exact same thing one day. He said it's just important. It's important to have that other perspective out there. It's important to look at everything through a different lens. And, uh, and I'm just trying to play my part in doing that. Right. So uh, that brings me to your blender, your brain blender that you have, that you mentioned. Uh, I think that's a metaphor, not something in your kitchen. But anyway, uh, uh that's a different – we have a lot of writers at Seeking Alpha who shut out just about everything but the financial statements and 
Yeah. Uh, and and they're like, it's my work, and I just bring my perspective to this very dry single document. I know from working with you and from this conversation that you're much more liberal about picking something here. You'll sort of see a story break, a headline will come across your desk, and that'll turn into an analysis piece that you'll publish sometimes around time. How do you, I think it's sort of, a lot of people have more confidence shutting out a lot of the other information and just drilling down on one particular thing. I find you to be much more eclectic about where you get information and much more willing to, you know, Citron will come out with a report, you'll read it, integrate it to your own ideas, and then and then push that out there and probably act on it in addition. How, yeah. What's your philosophy well, about you, about where you're grabbing information and how you incorporate other people's work into your own? Well, all these things, all these things work together, right? So anywhere that I can find any type of objective facts that can't be argued, that are facts that are finite, that are you know the, down to the bone, there's nothing to debate about. Uh-huh. You know what you what I'm looking for as an investor is I'm looking for any type of fact that I can collect that is irrefutable. And when I find that, I put it down, and then I put it with the rest of the irrefutable facts that I find. And from those facts, whether they're facts about the CEO's background and what he likes to do on the weekends and what his golf handicap is, or they're facts about, you know, the company's current ratio and what their working capital is, or anything from the super interesting to the super boring to the super financial all the way to the other side where, you know, you're just talking about the narrative try to find all those little irrefutable facts and just piece them. I look, I think first off, the more you shut out as an analyst, the more you're doing yourself a disservice. So if you only analyze the financials or you only analyze the, the story, um, you're screwing yourself because like, look at Tesla. They're a fantastic story, but their financials are dog shit, right? So you got to kind of balance those two and then try to apply the market psychology to it to try and figure out what the market is going to think about it too. Um, so I don't, I don't really try to limit myself. There's things that I'm better at and there's things that I'm worse at. Um, I think most people that enter economics and enter the world of finance come from a background that is very rooted in quantitative. Um, and so they come out of college with a very, uh, very in-depth understanding of financial statements and forensic accounting and, um, you know, and then when you try to ask them to apply the, the company's story or the narrative and, and try to write something that's compelling about their analysis, you know, you get something that's like reading the damn dictionary. I mean, it's just boring and, you know, it doesn't take everything into account. I, I kind of come from the other angle, which is, I think, rare in the financial world, which is, you know, I was really kind of, I came from a background in writing and through working for a public company and putting together their kind of, um, you know, their quarterly filings and their annual reports and stuff, working with securities attorneys, working with the CFO, working with the CEO, then eventually, you know, going to graduate school, taking some classes in finance, going to Wharton, taking some, uh, like, continuing executive education classes there and these things. I've kind of built my financial side up a little bit more, but I was, like, I was never – like, and I still will never claim to be a great accountant. 
Um, I'm just a very poor, like if you're looking for a forensic accountant, somebody that can look at a balance sheet and look at a P&L and kind of very quickly understand how the numbers are working together um, in terms of analyzing them, that's not my strength. Like, so I try to use my somewhat rudimentary understanding of the of the financial side of things um, and, and pair that with uh, also, you know, whatever the company's narrative or whatever a short seller might be coming out and saying about a company or whatever an activist may be taking a stake in a company for. So just like everybody else, I mean, I have things that I'm good at and things that I don't consider myself great at. I'm trying to kind of get those two to even out with one another. But I think anybody that does analysis and doesn't consider what, other investors think, especially in something that they're invested in, whether it is a security, whether it's, you know, Florida real estate, whether it's anything, whether it's gold, and they're not considering kind of the arguments of other investors, I think is doing themselves a disservice. I mean, I say if I'm long something, I want the biggest short in the company that is the most well-known short seller to, to lay their thesis in front of me because I need to be okay with it and I need to understand it fully. And if I'm short something, I need to know exactly what the biggest, most prominent, you know, shareholder in the company has as his thesis for owning it at the same time. So if you don't, you don't have the wherewithal to keep an open mind and address both sides of the spectrum uh, and kind of think about everything um, and you can't be flexible enough to, integrate that stuff into your analysis, I think that's, that's something that's worth working on. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things from that. I, I find it very refreshing. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, uh, one, of our, one of my motivations for doing our podcast is uh, to take the neurosis out of the idea of just talking about investment ideas. And to take this, I find that there's a ton of self-consciousness among financial analysts, and there's a little bit of this competitive thing of like, I know there's a lot of I know everything, or I or yeah. you have to know everything before you open your mouth. And my perspective is that no one is all-knowing, and everyone is just bringing, hopefully, bringing something useful to the table, but. Right. I find it pretty unfair to privilege only the people who are completely knowledgeable about some certain esoteric. Well, and the before that, before you can share any perspective, I just and so I I think that that's a really important. It's important for people to be to show your level of self awareness and not be so self conscious when trying to understand this stuff. That's not a question. That's just a. Um, are you still there? Did I lose you? I think I lost you. Mike, can you hear me? Yeah, did did I lose you? Sorry about that. No, I hit mute by accident. I'm a moron. See? Oh. <laughs> this is exactly why people should not be listening to me. I can't We're even operate my it. cell phone it's in the year 2018. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah look, um, so let, me just, let me just respond to what you said. Yeah. You know, it's like anything else in life, right? There's always going to be people that know more than you, and there's always going to be people that know less than you like anything else, you know what I mean? And if you carry that attitude with you, I don't care if it's in the financial markets or like, you know, look, it, I do jujitsu, right? And, and I'm just learning. I'm a, I'm a neophyte, right? I'm, I'm relatively new, you know? 
and and I play chess, and there's always going to be somebody better better than you at chess. There's always going to be somebody worse than you. You know, if you if you adopt that mindset with the financial markets and financial analysis, and you try as much as you can to leave your ego on the sidelines, I think it's going to serve you a hell of a lot better. Um, you talk about people that know everything or people that, um, you know, are experts in certain things. Those people get shit wrong too, man. You know, this is like when somebody says that, a, that an investment has no risk, you know, it's like nothing has no risk. And I said this in my, in my presentation at Whitney's thing, it may have very little risk, but you can't come out and say, no, you know, everything has risk, everything, no matter what financial advisor, what hedge fund manager, what, you know, cis overlord you talk to that pulls all the strings behind the scenes. It doesn't matter if you have, uh, it, it doesn't matter if a company executive walks up to you today and says, we're getting bought out tomorrow, there, there would still be risk in that trade, even though, by the way, you shouldn't do it because it's material non-public information. But the point of the matter is there's still risk. So even in, the, even in the situations where people have, you know, surety that is off the charts, there's always going to be, you know, there's always a counterparty and there's always going to be risk. And so, I just think in general, if you apply that to your life, um, you know, just from a philosophical standpoint, not a financial standpoint, you'll be perceived as less of a dick, which is a good thing, number one. And, uh, and number two, I think it'll serve you better, you know? Uh, yeah. So to, to know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. Like, I, w I would never sit at a table across from somebody and be like, oh, I'm a forensic accounting expert. Like, I'm, like why would anybody do that? You know, if you're not good at it. So you just try to better yourself and try to learn what you want to learn. And, um, you know, but like you're saying, even the specialists, even the guys that quote unquote know it all, uh, they don't know it all. And the more you learn things like that and uh, the more you understand that, <laughs> that the guy on TV with the bow tie isn't necessarily an economic genius just because he's wearing a bow tie the more likely you are to listen to my podcast. And that's really what this is all about, Mike. Just trying to get podcast <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, it is about, yeah, well, that's where, yeah, we both are in that kind of, we can't, we can look at it, but we're a little bit inside the whole financial media hamster wheel. And, you know, uh, yeah, not to get too meta, but saying that you don't have the bow tie is kind of another way of wearing a bow tie. Um, there's no real way to escape it, but I think the overall point that like people should be thinking for themselves and and not be intimidated. I think that the thing is, I don't I don't like to see people try and intimidate other people out of a discussion. Right. And, uh, well, I don't. We've already gone longer uh, than I think we expected. So real quick before I um before I sign off, yeah. um, I just want to say that. Uh, you guys have been tremendous to me over the last five or six years or however long I've been a contributor. Um, Speaking Alpha is really like what little name I have is where I, you know, kind of made that name. Um, and I'm, I'm really deep down appreciative for you guys allowing me to not only start writing there, but to learn as I was writing because, I didn't know a tenth of what I know now when I started, and probably five or six years from now, I'll I'll, I'll know a lot more than I do right now. And, and the site is such a big part of that. And I've met so many people and made so many like 
great connections through meeting other contributors. And the whole time I've been there, you know, George Moriarty has just been such a great and understanding person and has worked with me every step of the way, as you have too, Mike, also, because I know, like, from a financial perspective, like, you're definitely a, a lot smarter than I am. I mean, you're a CFA, um, and you guys are always um, classy with your feedback. You guys have helped me out immensely. Um, you know, I, I just I owe a serious debt of gratitude to the site, and the other person that I owe a debt of gratitude is one of your contributors, Kubiko, who um, I've befriended over the last couple of years, who I think is just one of the absolute most talented individuals I've ever read. I, I, I wish he could write more. I think he's just a full-fledged genius. I think he's a class act. He's an extremely nice person. And uh, he is, uh, I think, presents the best of what Seeking Alpha has to offer. And not to get, like, you know, too kind of uh, mushy, but over the last few years, he has really helped me out immensely. And I would have never met him if it wasn't um, through Seeking Alpha. And uh, and I owe you guys a debt of gratitude, and, and I owe him a debt of gratitude as well, as well as all these other contributors and the people that are just people that write there, people that listen to my podcast. Like, I get emails every day, man. I'm just so grateful for everybody to kind of help me out. I know that we're all kind of learning together, and it's awesome. I, I mean, I really owe you guys a debt of gratitude, so thank you very much. Thank you for being a part of the community, and thank you for the reminder of one of the important things that can get lost as we're going through the editorial day-to-day, which is that we need to be an open platform to all comers and right. people develop as much as we can. That's always a priority for us. It's a challenge. Uh, but, yeah, you're, you're bringing that to light, so thanks for that perspective. And thank you uh, for being a part of the community. Um, all right, that's a very, very kind and warm and fuzzy way to end a podcast with you. <laughs> all right, awesome. I have to jump. Thank you so much, man. I really okay. appreciate it. All right, take care, QTR. All right, take care, Mike, guys. Bye.